chapter 49 is where we are at this morning, so I encourage you to open your Bibles up to that. Isaiah chapter 49. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, we have Bibles around in the seat backs, underneath the seats, and uh, you can take one of those Bibles out and follow along with us. Isaiah chapter 49. Wow, 2023. So I, I remember, I, I don't know if any of you guys were like this, but when I was in grade school, there would be times where I would kind of try to figure out how old I would be at certain times in the future uh, with certain dates and different things like that. Anyone, anyone else? Ever, yeah, okay, I'm just weird, but <laughs> that's okay. So I, w- I would do that, and I remember like getting into the 2020s as someone that was like in fifth and sixth grade dude, will I still be alive then? You know, that's, I, I'll be in my 50s. That's like ancient. Now, now I'm like, man, I, I, I'm young. No, anyway. <laughs> but um, we, we purposely sang today about uh, how magnificent and how marvelous God is. We, we purposely sang today about uh, his great love and the vision that we need to keep in front of us every single day and not just the first day of the new year, um, that he needs to be our vision, that he needs to be our guide, and that on this day we're going to worship the Lord and we're going to celebrate the Lord, and on the next day we're going to worship the Lord and we're going to celebrate the Lord. And that, that was pretty much on purpose, every single one of those songs, to go along with what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 49. Isaiah, increasingly, as, as we enter into the final chapters of this incredible, incredible book, Isaiah increasingly is lifting our thoughts beyond our immediate problems. And that's what can happen a lot with the turn of a year. You can go, okay, it's a new year. It's a, you know, it's a new thing to be uh, looking forward to. And then within about 25 minutes of that new year happening, something doesn't go right. Or the same thing that happened last year is what's happening now in this new year. You turn the news on and you go, oh, great, machete attacks in New York Times, or you know, Times Square, I'm sorry. Uh, last night, different things like that. And you go, okay, this year's not going to be any different, apparently, than last year. Well, Isaiah wants our thoughts to go beyond our immediate problems to a more distant, more luxurious reality. And it's distant, but it's not that distant. Because like I said just a few minutes ago, it is amazing how fast time flies. It is amazing how fast it will be when we, in one way, shape, form, or another, are in front of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's amazing how fast that will be. And Isaiah opens the second major part of the book uh, back in chapter 40 with the comfort, comfort my people. And in this chapter, he, he launches out with, listen to me, listen to me, O, o islands, and, and pay attention, you people from afar. 
and the, the horizon is broadening to what he's saying. And Isaiah now presents the second of four servant songs. The suffering Jewish people in exile needed more than just a release from Babylon. You need more than just a new year, right? Otherwise, it's just the same old thing over and over again. The Jewish people needed a savior that was greater than Cyrus, that yes, Cyrus was going to release them and get them back to the promised land, but they needed more than that. And we all need spiritual liberation. We all need an everlasting savior. And Isaiah in this section is deepening our awareness of that. In chapter 42, he introduced us to the servant of the Lord. This mysterious hero now pops back on the stage along with, amazingly, our hostile response to him. So let's dive in into the first six. Uh, let's go with the first four verses right now. Listen to me. O islands, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named me. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has concealed me. And he has made me a select arrow. He has hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. But I said, I have toiled in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely the justice due to me is with the Lord and my reward with my God. The servant of the Lord we see here is set apart from birth and uniquely equipped for his mission in a prophetic way. He is the voice of God on earth and he demands a hearing from the entire world we see here. But unlike Cyrus, the weapons of his warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power and will destroy strongholds in a spiritual way as we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We see there that his word Right? His word is a sharp sword. He himself, he is the polished arrow. Not what he's carrying with him. He is the polished arrow. He is the weapon in the hand of God. He compels attention of the world by God's improbable gospel strategies. Hidden until the time is right, he emerges in history to conquer, not by military might, but by the force of what? Truth. The force of truth. Well, who is this dude? This is Jesus. Now, there's a problem for some here because in verse 3, they see, whoa, 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 whoa. The servant is identified as Israel in whom I will be glorified. Verses 5 and 6, we'll see here the same servant is the one who restores Israel to God. So how can Israel restore Israel? Well, a clue is back in chapter 48 where Isaiah confronted the house of Jacob who are called by the name of Israel but not in truth or right. 
Isaiah understood something here, that the demoralized Jewish people in exile whose failed historic mission was obvious to the nations, it was not a secret that the Jewish people blew it. They didn't follow God the way that they were called to follow him. And they had no longer lived up to their name. They're in exile. The largest group of them scattered never to be seen again. And God's purpose was to bless them that the world would be drawn to him. And the world's going, yeah, that didn't look like that worked. But Israel looked like they failed and By now, their failure makes a mockery of their ancient identity and everyone looking at them. They they don't look like the Israel of God. And then we have to ask then, is, is the purpose of God defeated? These guys are in exile. And Isaiah is getting us to think about that. And the answer is no. God provides a substitute Israel, one who does live up to the name. You see, Jesus is our substitute, right? He is the one who takes on our sin. He is the one that cleanses our failure. And what that means is, is that He's not only our substitute in his death, but also in his life. As I enter into 2023, I need to remember that Jesus is everything to me. That Jesus is everything to us. Jesus had no failure, did he? His only failure was the failure that he took on for us, right? His sin that he took on was our sin. And our only success is what? His. So the Israel of verse 3 is the Messiah, the servant who embodies all that the historic Israel should have been and was actually pointing to. He is the Israel in whom God will be glorified. This brings us back to something that we need to remember every single time we open the Old Testament. We can't make sense of the Old Testament without Jesus. He's the one on whom all lines converge. All the persons, all the events, all the institutions of the Old Testament, including the nation of Israel itself, finds its complete meaning in Christ. The incompleteness of the Old Testament demands a resolution. It demands something new. On every page, the Old Testament is crying out for Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised when the Old Testament uses the name Israel for the Messiah. We should expect it because the whole Bible is about Christ. If we understand the signals and the highways of the Old Testament itself, it is sending us where? 
It is sending us to Christ. The apostles understood that. They were pretty good theologians by the time they were writing the New Testament. And everywhere, what what did they do? They took the Old Testament and pointed it to who? Christ. And verse 4 then reveals something about the Messiah, Jesus, the very center of God's purpose unfolding in history, struggled at times. Now, this, this one, someone may kind of, yeah, this feels a little rough to me. Jesus struggled with feelings of failure. Do you believe that? In his humanness, yes. It shouldn't. His earthly mission some 2,000 years ago did not come across as one continual triumph after another. Unlike human conquerors strutting across the stage of history adored by the envious people, Jesus was despised, he was rejected, and at times he felt frustrated. In the end, he felt abandoned. In Matthew 27, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. But unlike historic Israel, who felt forsaken and ran away from God, what did the true Israel, Christ, what did he do? He didn't turn away. He didn't turn away from God in unbelief. In all of the, what the world would say would be setbacks, he trusted My right is with the Lord. My my recompense is with my God. Jesus saw the joy set before him. He clung onto it by faith, and that faith persevered and made him uh, solid and strong, obviously, in his mission. And we see that this is the divine purpose going on in verses 5 and 6 then, this worldwide impact. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the uh, preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Jesus is what? He is the Savior of the world. There is no other. He's God's appointed light for the nations. Every wisdom that the world pumps out Every philosophy that the world pumps out, every moral code that's not part of the moral code of God, the moral code outside of Christ, lies in darkness. Every code outside of Christ crumbles. It it, it fails to meet the perfection of the Lord. And to enter into the light of Christ is to have gloom lifted, confusion replaced with truth, sadness in the state of affairs in your life, and to delight in the fact that you know you are saved. He is our breakthrough to seeing everything in what? A new light. 
and his God-appointed mission is to bring the light of God into the natural darkness of sin. And he will succeed. Jesus said himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it goes on to say, you know, that he's going to be despised. He's going to be a despised servant of rulers. And there's going to be covenants, but the worldly rejected uh, rejection of, of Christ should not be surprising. Verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and its Holy One, to the despised one. Do you see ones capitalized there? To the despised one, to the one abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. So he's the despised one, he's the abhorred one, he's the servant of rulers. Kings will see and, and arise. Princes will also bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. How many of you would agree with me that sometimes God's ways just seem really strange? It's like, what are you up to, God? What, what is this up to? in my life. I, I, I picture going back to the call of Abraham or Abram back in Genesis chapter 12 about the ways of God. God calls him and Abram went. But some of the strange things about God is God did not tell him how, did not tell him when, did not tell him how it was all going to play out. And Abram did something, Abraham did something that I think many of us need to get better at doing. We didn't request God to show me the end game first. Show me the end game of all of this first. If we tend to understand the end game of everyday living, we become arrogant. And Christ's strategy is not to overwhelm the arrogance of the world with even more arrogance, like every other conqueror, but to empty himself and take the form of what was said there as servant. Now, as a side note here, that means as Christians, if we're following Christ, we should be the most humble people in the world. We should be the ones that are not arrogant. We should be the ones that go, I, I serve an incredible God and he is truth and I believe in him and I'll share truth, but I will not be arrogant about that. The servanthood of Christ can make it easy for many people to dismiss Christ with contempt. There are professing believers that treat Jesus as an add-on. Enhancing lifestyle rather than everything, Lord of all. 
well, why, why do people get like that? And we see this here. For one thing, human heart is endlessly self-exalting and, and thus ends up being Christ-despising uh, even more than we realize in many ways. And this is Isaiah's point. Christ approaches us not like Cyrus with a fuming rage and a whip and uh, all of this military might. He approaches us as a servant. What did he do for you? He died for you. He gave his life for you. And he's even more than a servant. He's not above servanthood, but he's even more. He has true meekness. And God has resolved, as we see in that section of Scripture there, that even the great ones on earth, the kings and princes, will one day put their pride away. And what, they, what are they going to do? They're going to honor the servant of the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the way of God. And this is how he works with us, not just the kings and powers of this world and the princes. This is how he works with us. Humiliation then vindication. Get, get rid of self and pride. And the only way you can do that is through Christ. And what does he do? Molds, shapes, and makes you into that new person. Vindicated in him. The true worth of the servant of the Lord shines in his influence then on people. On people. People that joyfully flock to him from around the world. And God addresses his servant in that light, verses 8 through 12. Thus says the Lord in this worldwide gathering. In a favorable time, I have answered you, and in the day of salvation, I have helped you. And I will keep you and give you for a covenant of the people to restore the land, to make them inherit the desolate heritages, saying to those who are bound, go forth. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. Along the roads they will feed, and their pasture will be on on all bare heights. They will not hunger or thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For he who has compassion on them will lead them and will guide them to springs of water. I will make all my mountains a road and my highways will be raised up. Behold, these will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these will come from the land of Sinem. The way to understand these verses is to understand it against the backdrop of Cyrus liberating the Jewish exiles in the 6th century B.C., and that event then fills Isaiah's thoughts here through this section of his book because his prophetic eye does something. He discerns in it how Jesus saves us today. How Jesus saves us today. Go forth to those who are in darkness. Show yourselves. They will not hunger or thirst. 
but as I will make all my mountains a road. I will guide them. What does Jesus say to us as disciples? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We see that there. I think Isaiah would have loved Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be?, that echoes much of the same thing here. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Isaiah is understanding and sharing with us the historic liberation of God's people by Cyrus, yes, but by a model of greater liberation by the servant of the Lord that is this age of gospel fulfillment. We're no longer waiting for something better. That's the part of living in the church age that should be so, dare I say, fun for us. We're, the only thing that we're waiting for that's better is Christ returning. But the thing that we have better is we've got the full revelation of what it's all about and understanding of Christ in us, through us, through the Holy Spirit, and we're living in it. We're no longer waiting for something better. And this is the time to be liberated from the sins that blow us apart. We need to think of what Christ is worth to us. He is a covenant to the people, as it says there in verse 8. In other words, he is himself the very embodiment of God's pledge of grace to us. He is how God pours out favor upon us and how we are bound to God in return. From the beginning, God has given himself to us through covenants. That's why in the Old Testament, when you start seeing covenants... Formal agreements, God keeps saying through every one of those formal agreements, you can bank on this. You you can make sure that my promise is true. God is not ad-libbing his way through history. Oh, great. Now everyone in the United States has done this. Now what do I do? That's not what God does. God has a plan. God is not casual or offhanded in any of his dealings with us. God is serious about his dealings with us, takes us seriously, and knows how weak our faith is. He knows we need assurance. Not just assurance, a strong assurance. What is the Strongest assurance possible in the language of the Old Testament, a covenant, an oath, 
And that is the way of God. And Isaiah is showing us that Christ is himself God's covenant with weak people who have failed to keep their end of the bargain. Jesus said at his last supper with his disciples in 1 Corinthians 11, 25, this this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And I can't imagine any more solemn and awe-inspiring declaration of God's grace towards us than that. Because when Jesus says, my blood for you, I mean, that's the covenant, right? My, my blood for you. It, is it conceivable if he says that, that God would ever forsake us as believers? The whole story of the human race is God's way of staging the outpouring of the redemptive love of Christ. He is serious about his love for you. We thus should be serious about our love for him. And Isaiah's vision here sweeps across the history of salvation. He sees God through the covenant man, Jesus Christ, restoring the ruins that sin has made from us. He sets us free from our prisons. He leads us forward into a new way of life, caring for us moment by moment, providing for us fully, as we see in this section of Scripture here in 8 through 12. This liberation gathers in not only the Jewish people of that Babylon time, but masses of people from all over the world as history rushes forward to the end. And as I said earlier, history is rushing forward. And can you see what God is doing? God is doing something new and constructive and lasting in the messy human scene of sin. And anyone can be part of it who believes in him. God is out to prove how kind he can be through Jesus Christ. And God is proving there is room for you and for me. And if we know that the covenant is that strong, is that sure, then verse 13 should be our response, right? Verse 13 should be our response. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on the afflicted. Worldwide redemption calls for cosmic celebration. The people of God from all nations, so richly comforted, so richly loved, should be praising him with everything they have. And on top of that, the heavens and the earth and the mountains shout the hurrahs as well. But then something happens in verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. Hold it. 
Can, can, do you see this, what's happening here? Verse 13, shout to the Lord, praise him for what he has done. Verse 14, the Lord has forsaken me. That a, talk about a letdown. The prophet just told us that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And we look around at our problems and all of a sudden, what do we do? The Lord has forsaken me. He's forgotten me. Isn't that so true? The people of God, even as they're being carried in the everlasting arms of our Lord towards heaven... How many of you have ever met a gloomy Christian? Let's get it a little more personal. How many of you have been the gloomy Christian? Sour. Impossible to please. It is true. In many years of ministry, I have met a few people who profess to be Christians that I believe have never once been happy in their life. It's like, just question, you know Jesus saved you, right? Can't, can't that give you a little bit of a happiness in spite of what's going on? The good news should be taken as good news. Good news. Shout for joy, the ultimate joy, drawing praise from the heavens, the earth, and the mountains, but far be it praise for me. And how many times have you been around in the Lord's church where you sit there and you go, I don't know if anyone here is alive. Now, some of that's my fault, maybe. <laughs> I get that. But in spite of me, God's word is alive and breathing and should thrill our souls. And what does God do when we walk through life like being the Eeyore of life? What does God do? He goes on and on proving himself that I'm God. And Isaiah argues this point by reminding us of things about God in 15 through 21. God, God has not forgotten us. It's we who forget him. Verse 15, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. Behold, and if you want to, I don't, I don't do this often, but if you, if you want to circle a verse in this section of Scripture, circle this one. I have inscribed you on the palms of my hand, and your walls are continually before me. Your builders hurry, you your destroyers and devastators will depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All of them gather together. They come to you as I live, declares the Lord. 
you will surely put on all of them as jewels and bind them on as a bride. For your waste and desolate places and your destroyed land, surely now you will be too cramped for the inhabitants, and those who swallowed you will be far away. The the children of whom you were bereaved will yet say in your ears, the place is too cramped for me. Make room for me that I may live here. Then you will say in your heart, Who has begotten these for me? Since I have been bereaved of my children, and I am barren and and exile and a wanderer, and who has reared these? Who has reared these? Behold, I was left alone. From where did these come? God's addressing Zion, and in that culture, a city was thought in a feminine gender. That's why the final section of this passage in 49, 15 through 53 is filled with images of what I would say Lady Zion and her children. And in our terms today, the church and her members. And God is saying that he will never abandon his family. Can, can I repeat that for you? He will never abandon his family. Never His love is more mindful than even the love of a tenderly nursing mother. And the imagery of verse 16 suggests a vision of God spreading out his hands before us so that we can see our very names engraved there. Does that not blow you away? Scott. That should change how we are today. We should celebrate. If his assurance, (laughs) your name is engraven in his hand. Never, ever will he abandon his people, his family, If that doesn't move you, I don't know what else you're holding out for. God swears an oath and covenant by his very self to surprise us with the expansion and growth of his church here. Isaiah imagines it like a childless woman delighted and astonished at the multitude of happy children gathering around her as their mother, replacing her devastation with fullness. This is the future of the church by God's decree. I think too many times we hang our hat on statements like the the gates of hell will never prevail against the, the church. And I think sometimes we take that and extrapolate it out in the wrong way. We, stra- we extrapolate it out like, okay, there's going to be only like five of us left, but we're going to make it. But we also see in Scripture that his church grows. And we've seen it through history. Every time the church is persecuted, It isn't left with five people. What happens? People flock to the truth. 
And it's a saying, at some point, his people are going to look around and blink with amazement. What are the, all of these multitudes gathered into the church? Even when we feel like it's barren and, and, and futile in our culture to, to proclaim God's word. And you start saying, what on earth has happened? How in the world could God's church be growing like this? God. Gathering his people. And it says essentially here, the growth of the church will be too vast to be explained by any human plan. There have been so many, in the, in the 30 plus years I've been in ministry, there have been so many different evangelism plans that have been presented to me. And I can list them, and some of you would know, you know, it's, you know evangelism explosion and peace plan and all, all these different things. But none of it matches his plan. His plan. It, it won't be our faith that grows the church, but God's resolve to show his mercy to more and more sinners. In a final triumph of grace, we won't be congratulating ourselves on a job well done. We're going to be in amazement on the job that he's done. And that's what verse 21 is saying. I I was left alone. Where have these come from? Where does this come from? And that leads us into the triumph of the Lord as we close this section. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and set up my standard to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosom, and your daughters will be carried on their shoulders. Kings will be your guardians and their princesses, your nurses, and they will bow down to you with their faces to the earth and lick the dust off your feet, and you will know that I am God. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Can the prey be taken from the mighty man or the captives of a tyrant to be rescued? Surely, thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty man will be taken away and the prey of the tyrant will be rescued. For I will contend with the one who contends with you and I will save your sons. I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh and, I, and they will drink, will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. And all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. The bold language in this paragraph should not be misunderstood. The gospel will be expanding the whole world over with more and more people living in reverence to Jesus' church. He's the one in charge. And this powerful movement, it's not going to be just another quote-unquote great awakening. The prestige given to the growing church of these days that we see here is the expression of of spiritual indebtedness. In fact, it's happening all around the world today. It is amazing to see how Christ's message 
of his forgiveness, his love, his redemption, him being Savior, is being received throughout the world. Thousands and thousands and millions of people are accepting Christ now. And sometimes we get jaded because we see the culture we live in and we go, ah, I'm not, I don't know about that. Well, it's happening here too. It's happening here as well. Not one person that God calls is missed. History draws closer to the return of Christ, and I believe that along with evil accelerating, as we see in Scripture, what also accelerates is people accepting Christ. And the bondage to the world is gone. Gospel-driven triumph of the church, trusting in God himself through Christ, draws the church together. Those who oppose this onrush of joy end up doing what in the last few verses here? They end up consuming themselves. What do we kind of see around us in our culture today? Our culture consuming itself. Right? That's what we see. But what do we see with those who follow Christ with all of their heart, all of their soul, all of their mind? They're all in. It's like a parallel universe. Right? And Isaiah here is heaping assurance upon assurance. Because when God's people get demoralized, and they get too demoralized to believe his promises, you know what God does? He heaps on more grace. He, he, he says, I, I love you more and more and more every day. Here's my hands. Real quickly, some application points in these 26 verses. First, make Jesus greater in your own heart. Go back over these verses, maybe verses 1 through 7, and find things to pray Jesus, praise for Jesus for. Exalt him in life, personal holiness, magnify him, evangelism, magnify him. Secondly, get on board with what God is doing through the church in this world. He is bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Think about your life and how you want to live in light of spreading the gospel. You know, with the people on your sports team and the people in your work environment, and the people in your home. Third, understand the temptation for discouragement. And fight it. And how do you fight it? Your hand, his hand is engraving with your name. 
You focus on Him. And Him alone. Fourth, we need some urgency in life. Urgency towards salvation. I, I don't know everyone, and obviously I can't run behind everyone that ever enters our doors here at church and know where they stand truthfully with God. But don't leave this place lost. Believe in Him. And those of us who are Christians, be urgent about sharing faith and being involved in sharing faith around the world. Fifth, we need to meditate on how God has promised to never forsake us. He cannot and will not stop loving you. It's called a covenant. It doesn't matter what you have gone through or what you're going through or what will happen in 2023. Your name, once again, is engraved in the palm of his hand. Count on it. He won't lose you. He won't leave you. He will not forsake you. Meditate on the glory of the coming of the heavenly Jerusalem that we read in Revelation 21 and 22. Feed your heart on where he's leading us. And enjoy praising him all the way.